This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. U.S. President Joe Biden ends U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan as the Taliban seizes control of Kabul. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Between the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which resulted in the deaths of 13 U.S. servicemen and scores of Afghan civilians, setbacks in containing the Delta variant of the coronavirus, and the ravages of Hurricane Ida, August has been one of the most trying months of Joe Biden's young presidency. On this politics edition of Encounter, we will examine to what extent disapproval of the chaotic U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan will exact a political cost for President Biden and fellow Democrats. Some Republican lawmakers have called for President Biden's impeachment or resignation for the perceived failure in planning and the loss of life due to the terrorist attack by the group ISIS-K in the days leading up to the August 31st deadline. Will the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and the hasty U.S. departure undermine U.S. credibility and bolster the fortunes of al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations who may exploit the current power vacuum in Afghanistan? Or will having exited a 20-year war allow Biden to shift his focus to other serious national security threats, such as those posed by China and Russia? As Politico newspaper reports, quote, the White House is also eager to put the Afghanistan saga behind it and refocus on pressing domestic concerns, even as the ramifications appear likely to stretch on for months, if not years. Closed quote. Regarding domestic concerns, President Biden and Democratic lawmakers who hold the thinnest of majorities in Congress are eager to pass two infrastructure proposals, one a bipartisan measure, which has already cleared the Senate, and the other a multi-trillion dollar human infrastructure bill, which is opposed by Republicans and will have to be approved with Democratic votes only using the parliamentary procedure known as budget reconciliation. We will discuss these and other challenges facing President Joe Biden with our veteran political analysts. John Fortier is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and that's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And Jim Kessler, he's executive vice president for policy at Third Way, and that's a center-left policy group also based in Washington. And gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Great to be back. Thank you, Carol. I'm going to switch around and start with Jim Kessler. And Jim, I just want to say, you know, having read my introduction, you know, I don't want to downplay the enormous accomplishment also of the administration in having gone through with this withdrawal. We got more than 120,000 people out, citizens and other Afghan allies. Nonetheless, there is fallout from this withdrawal, no matter how popular the idea of getting out of this 20-year war has been among the American public. What do you think might be the political costs or consequences for Joe Biden and maybe the Democrats as well? Well, let's separate the political from sort of what's happening in the world and in, in Afghanistan. Look, this was not the withdrawal that Biden had hoped for. And I do think that it has some short-term negative consequences for Joe Biden politically. But I mean, look, before Afghanistan was known as the forever war in the United States, it was known as the forgotten war in the United States. And this is a country that basically ignored, was pretending this war was not happening for most of the last two decades. Joe Biden looks to be now the final of four presidents who each in their own way mishandled Afghanistan. I think the war was lost 
under George W. Bush, the moment we invaded Iraq. Obama had his surge, which I think was a temporary patch. Donald Trump negotiated a deal with the Taliban, which sealed the fate. And then Joe Biden really underestimated how poorly the Afghan government was and how quickly it would fall once the U.S. announced its withdrawal date. And, you know, we're seeing some real tragedy on the ground. I think Biden deserves credit for making a tough decision and for getting a lot of Americans and others out of there. But there are still people in Afghanistan who desperately need to get out. We cannot forget them, even though I think this country and Americans are going to forget Afghanistan very quickly. Turning over to you, John Fortier, just as Jim Kessler said, in many respects, President Biden does deserve credit for making a very hard decision. It was in line with American public opinion. We've been there for 20 years. We're marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. But what about political costs, even if they may be short term? What do you think they might be for Biden? Well, look, I think you do have, you know, with Donald Trump having staked out a position which was really against the more hawkish elements of Republican foreign policy establishment, not only in Afghanistan, but some other areas, pushing for something that, you know, in the American public had some popularity and there was certainly war fatigue among the American public. But I think Joe Biden, I don't know if he miscalculated or just didn't appreciate how quickly it would come, is with that popularity, there was always going to be some cost of the actual pullout of Afghanistan. Nobody thought it was going to go very well. And the idea that the American people would be happy with it, they might have been in a sort of background way. Afghanistan wasn't on the forefront of their minds, but the terrible costs of seeing what happens pulling out of Afghanistan, I think were apparent and, and not good for Biden. You know, and beyond that, I do think it did raise some serious questions about his leadership, his leadership with other allies and just statements that the administration made. While everyone knew that there was going to be a serious move of the Taliban to take over at least major parts of the country over time, the idea that this was going to happen quickly was downplayed by the administration. So I think it has bad consequences. I'm with Jim a bit in saying that it was hard to know what the longer term view is to people remember Afghanistan in a year, in two years. It depends. I mean, there certainly could be actions on the ground that really remind us of it. Terrorism that's rekindled or, or other actions that bring to mind the fact of the people that we've left behind and that are hurt over time. So I do think it could keep coming up. In the big picture, you know, Joe Biden had had some pretty good ratings for an early president in his job approval ratings. Those have come down. They're not at disastrous levels, but they've certainly come down pretty significantly, both because of this, Afghanistan, the most proximate cause, but also I think the COVID resurgence also, again, a president, whether you think everything is his fault or not, is going to bear some of the responsibility for how things are going. And I think the combination of those two has put the president at the immediate level of, of a president, a job approval rating, which if he were running for re-election today would be a little uncertain whether he'd win or not. not he's in a terrible place, but he's certainly not in a great place either. Will that last? Will he rebound? There's a long time to the midterms, I think, as Jim was alluding to. But I do think Joe Biden is in a very different place today than he was six weeks ago because of Afghanistan, but I think also because of the worsening COVID, which really has pushed people back to their more traditional corners of the parties and raised some doubts about his leadership. Well, back to you, Jim Kessler. And I think that's the key point that John Fortier made about raising questions about Biden's leadership. After all, the tenets of his presidency were competence, calm, control, and he, you know, he's a foreign policy expert. 
And some of that credibility is being called into question over the way he handled the withdrawal, the execution, even if the idea of withdrawing was popular. And of course, just as John said, COVID and the Delta variant, which is not you know, within his control, nor is people not wanting to get vaccinated. Talk about the tensions, particularly regarding COVID and the Delta variant, that that has undermined his hope that somehow we would be turning a corner as of, you know, Independence Day in July and how things have just gotten worse and how that also contributes to his lower approval ratings. Well, I think, you know, look, John turned the clock back to six weeks ago where Biden's approval ratings were pretty good and they've definitely come down. And I think six weeks ago, America was a country in a good mood and now America is a country in a bad mood. And on many of those things, most folks in the country don't think it's Joe Biden's fault, but they're still in a bad mood. And the Afghanistan situation, there were enough miscalculations there. And certainly the first 72 hours of the withdrawal were bad enough that it pierced some of the aura of competency of the Biden administration. They came back and they did a pretty remarkable job of getting Americans out of there. There's still more work to do. On COVID, we have a pandemic that is going on and is surging in the parts of the country that don't really believe that either the virus is that serious or that the vaccine works. And we have this bizarre situation where people are refusing to get a vaccine that is free and willing to pay thousands of dollars for horse deworming medication that doesn't work to treat COVID because of some information they're receiving from some far reaches of the internet that is guiding their healthcare choices. But those choices and the exploding rates of COVID in some parts of the economy of the country are having an impact on the entire economy and sort of the mood, stature, and optimism of the country that is rubbing off right now on all political leaders, but also the most prominent political leader, Joe Biden. And finally, I'd say, you know, this is August of a first term of a Democratic administration. They've always been nightmarish months for Democrats. It was for Bill Clinton in August of 1993. It was for Barack Obama in 2009. And it's not been a great one for Joe Biden in 2021. Well, before we go to a break, John Fortier, with regard to the Delta variant and its resurgence, you have your finger on the pulse of poll numbers. Is it fair to say that the Delta variant is really surging in what we call the red states, primarily Republican states, not all. There's Ohio, the Ohio governor, and I think Vermont, but a lot of the states in the South, somehow it's become very political, very partisan for some reason. I guess I would say, and I, I disagree a bit with Jim here, that look, no one of our presidents caused the coronavirus. Donald Trump didn't bring it on America. Joe Biden didn't bring it on America, but they're president. And when you're president, there's a responsibility of dealing with it. And I do think there's a bit of blame shifting to make the argument to say, well, it was the red America. It's those Trump yahoos not getting vaccinations. I certainly believe that everyone should get vaccinated. It'd be good for you, good for your community, good for the country. But, you know, we do see it's not as if the only people out there who are not getting vaccinated are Trump supporters. There's a wide group of people. I do think it is a problem with a certain group of people who are there. Most Trump voters have gotten vaccinated. But the point really isn't to blame these states now. We've seen 
various times where certain states have surged, other states have fallen back, and there's back and forth patterns. I would not be too early to say, well, it's just those red states and those unvaccinated people that are Trump supporters. Basically, the responsibility falls to the president. And I think they're fair or unfair. There are questions about could he have done better? Should he have pushed for vaccination rates higher? Could he have persuaded other people, both the Trump supporters and others? Could he have been doing more things? And so, again, the view of one party is going to be, well, that leader is really screwing up and not doing very well on the coronavirus. And the other one is going to be a little more defensive. But I do think here some of the reason that Donald Trump lost the election in 2020 was because the country was under a bad place. Bad things had happened. You could blame some of it on Trump. Some of it was just the fact that the coronavirus is there. I think Biden is going to have some of the problems of this coronavirus falling on him. He's the president. How long will this last? I don't know. Kids going back to school, other issues are really getting Republicans, but also other moderate voters you know, worked up and a lot of issues that are day-to-day issues. And the fact that we thought we were getting past a lot of the coronavirus is weighing on people. Jim's right that things could change, but he pointed out a couple of <laughs> examples that are probably not so great for Democrats, 93 and 2009. Well, Those were followed a year later by very, very bad losses by Democrats in the midterm elections. I'm not predicting that per se, but if numbers of the president aren't good as we come into the midterm in a year or so, obviously that's going to lead to some significant losses. And the the margins are very small. So for Joe Biden and Democrats to continue to have majorities after 2022, he's going to have to be in a lot better place than he is today and probably even in a better place than he was six weeks ago. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, from whom you just heard. He's resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. And they're joining me via Microsoft Teams. And we're discussing the U.S. political landscape. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA or connect with us on Facebook. Well, here's a big shout out to a new Twitter follower, Bilal Ahmed from Lahore, Pakistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to you, Jim Kessler. I wonder if we could maybe introduce some good news. What do you think about the prospect of these infrastructure bills that I alluded to in the introduction? We have a bipartisan bill that's pending uh, that has, as I said, bipartisan support, a larger bill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she repaired a rift among Democrats not too long ago over this, you know, the sequencing of these bills. What are your thoughts? The infrastructure bill was a huge accomplishment for Biden. It is a bipartisan accomplishment, and I think it is a victory for moderates in both parties. It is an ambitious piece of legislation. It deals with climate change. It deals with broadband Internet throughout this vast country and then other pieces of hard infrastructure. And I think Congress deserves to pat itself on the back, and so does the president. They did a great job on this, and people said it could not be done. And it was part of the promise of the Biden presidency that he was going to try and bring the nation together. That bill is now tied, at least politically, to another bill that Democrats are hoping to pass called Budget Reconciliation, which is a special process by which Democrats can pass a bill through the Senate with less than a supermajority 60 votes that is very large and includes a massive tax cut for the middle and working class, other elements on climate change, and many other programs. Each individual piece of that bill is very popular. But when you put them all together, the size of that bill 
can also be a bit scary. And the negotiations for that bill are going to be very public and very ugly. So I believe it is going to pass along with the infrastructure bill. But along the way, it is going to look like it's going to fail 50 times before it gets to the president's desk. And the process itself will be off-putting for the American people. In the end, it should be a benefit to Democrats and to Biden. But the process that you go through to pass this sort of thing never looks good. So quickly before I turn to John, you think that the larger reconciliation bill for what we call human infrastructure that the Republicans are opposed to, that somehow that could pass with even the more conservative members of the Senate and the House, conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema of Arizona. You think that the common ground can be found between them and progressives for this larger reconciliation bill? I do. And one of the things that needs to happen is parts of the bill to pass a bill under reconciliation. The legislation has to pass muster with the parliamentarian who is sort of like the umpire of the United States Senate about whether the provision is eligible. And to me, the key is whether there's some immigration provisions that are going to deal with what are known as dreamers, about a million or so people who Democrats are trying to make sure have a path to citizenship that are in this country. If that passes the parliamentarian's test, and I think it will, It'll make it very, very difficult for progressives to oppose whatever is included in reconciliation. And then I think moderates will probably whittle down the size of the Mm -hmm. bill on the other end. So I do believe it is going to pass, but there's going to be a lot of public horse trading along the way. Yes, public horse trading. That's always a part of of legislation, uh, John Fortier. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, says, well, she announced October 1 is a target date for passing the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure and social spending agenda. What do you think about the politics of these bills? Well, generally, I've said, I think Joe Biden and the administration, Democrats have proceeded in a smart way in that they're trying to get aspects of their agenda through spending and tax changes in various ways. And the reason I think that is smart is because some of that, at least, can be done through a more majority process. They have the barest of majorities in the Senate. It's 50-50 with the vice president breaking the tie. But they are allowed to do things that will be done really all on their side. Now, they've also crafted this other package, which has gotten more bipartisan support. And I think that's also to the credit of the president, that there's a the more infrastructure-related piece of this. I agree with Jim almost exactly that in the case of spending bills, you can always make some deal and cut things down and trade things. It's going to be a long slog to get there. And Jim's right about the decision of the parliamentarian on immigration. There are probably 10 other decisions of the parliamentarian which might determine things that can go in and things that can't go in. So I think whatever comes out may look very different from what went in, but I expect that it will be a democratically supported probably almost all Democrats and no Republicans pushing something through that can garner the support of everyone in the party. That means a smaller trimmed down bill, but still by any standard, a much higher amount of money is being spent than really almost any other bill we've spent in the past. And so I think we'll get there. I don't think it will happen by October 1st. I think we're going to probably be talking about this well into the year. And it's something that's not going to happen quickly. And there's a lot of negotiation. Will it help Democrats? It always helps to be able 
able to pass something. So I think at the end of the day, something will be passed. That's a good thing. But, you know, a lot of the specifics, there'll be some hard feelings. And you did see with this small group of moderates revolting for a while that there are tensions on both sides. Tensions, just one vote in the Senate, a small number in the House. And of course, on the very progressive side, plenty of people in both the Senate and the House were unhappy with what might be some cutting back of what they want. So back to you, Jim Kessler. I know we touched on the midterms earlier, and you have said at these microphones that notwithstanding the fact that the president's party you know, rarely does very well in the midterms when you hold all levers of power, you thought maybe the Democrats could still eke out a win perhaps in the House and certainly maybe in the Senate. I just wonder, given what happened in Afghanistan, if you stand by that, because many Democrats are bracing, uh, we read, for the House of Representatives to flip into Republican hands. Could a success with respect to infrastructure offset any of the shortcomings and misgivings people may have over how the president handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So November 2022 is a long way off. Look, the smart betting money would be that Republicans take control of the House and they take control of the Senate. Historically, that is what happens in midterm elections. They don't need to do too well in order to do that. They just need to pick up one Senate seat and a handful of House seats. What I think Joe Biden and Democrats have going for them and whether this is enough, we'll see, is there's a very good chance that the economy will be very strong for the remainder of this year and next year and that through vaccination, et cetera. And I think Biden has done an excellent job in trying to get people vaccinated and a lot of people are vaccinated, that COVID will be more or less under control and that many of the things that Democrats have passed are popular. Although, again, I do think John made the point, even whittled down, this will be much larger piece of legislation, the reconciliation bill, than what Americans are used to. And that will have a cost in public opinion for Democrats as well. So I think the smart money is that Republicans take control. But I do think there's a path for Democrats to remain in power in the midterms. It would be going against precedent, but there's possibility. And 14, 15 months is a long time. Well, 14, 15 months is a long time, but that never stops us, gentlemen, from still speculating. So, so John Fortier, you get the last word. And I want to quote a very colorful Democrat, and this is Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman Sean Maloney, Democrat of New York. He said of his colleagues, he said, stop bedwetting and get back to work. In other words, he's trying to put a positive face. He knows that it's very difficult historically for the Democrats in this case to win in the midterms. Uh, and then there are, of course, all of the problems and the very slim majorities. But what do the Democrats, in your view, have to do to beat the odds? Well, I think the not only the smart money, but the very smart money would be that Democrats would probably lose control of one or the other of two houses. I mean, just thinking about historically, the only very handful of times, three that we know of, that the in-party has gained seats in the House of Representatives. And that's honestly a very small gain, a single-digit gain, has been when presidents have been extremely popular, 60% job approval or more. Bill Clinton in 1998, George Bush in 2002, and FDR way back before we really polled. But it's rare, rare. And so even a president doing pretty well is likely to lose some seats. You're one seat away in the Senate. You got a chance of taking both houses. So I 
think it's very hard. Jim is right that things can change, be much better for Biden than they are now. And I think the economy is one thing to watch for. If you have simple political science models, you often look at what the president's job rating is and how the economy is doing. And so if the economy is a lot better, probably Biden's ratings go up, but it's a long shot. I think it's very hard to imagine them really holding both. I think it's likely that they'll lose one. And one interesting point is that we have some mini midterms coming up soon. A recall election in California for governor, a Virginia race for governor coming up later this fall in the off year. Those might be some signs of Biden administration not doing so well, that maybe Democrats will have some more trouble. The good thing going for Democrats is those states, especially California, but even more and more Virginia, are pretty solidly Democratic states. And so Republicans have to fight against the general strength of Democratic participation in those states. But if those are very close, or perhaps if Republicans pull off a surprise win, that'll be a sign that, you know, an unpopular president or less popular than he was and has some trouble. And a president, the level Joe Biden is right now, which might not last, is probably going to do worse than just losing a few seats at the next election. If he's where he is today in the midterm election, Democrats are likely to do much worse in both houses. But again, time could change where the president is before 2022 November. For now, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guest, John Fortier. He's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Jim Kessler executive vice president for policy at third way thank you thank you encounter was produced in washington with technical assistance from rick pantaleo i'm carol castiel join me again next week for another encounter on the voice of america